to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the Bronstein Corp, and Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. And uh, the more we learn about the Bills, uh, the more we don't seem to know, uh, other than the fact that they keep accumulating wins, six and two now, after yesterday's 24 to 21 victory over the New England Patriots in Orchard Park. And um, I wrote this sentence in my column uh, off of that game, and I, I like the word. I don't think I've used it yet. The Bills just refuse to be persuasive. Yes, they're winning the games, but I don't, can you trust them? Here we are halfway through the season, eight games. There's still a lot of time to go, of course. They're pretty much locked into a playoff berth at this point. Comfortable lead, uh, well, a game and a half over Miami uh, in the AFC East, but wild card, extra wild card this year. I mean, the Bills are going to make the playoffs, um, barring something massive, you know, maybe no playoffs at all or, you know, asteroids striking the earth. But can you trust them? Can you trust them against any opponent? They have proven that they can barely beat the bad teams. They're competitive against good teams and then overmatched against the best teams. I don't know. I'll leave it to you guys after what we saw yesterday. Yeah, it was uh, not the most inspiring win against the Patriots, especially as the week wore on and, you know, what New England was without its top two wide receivers, its top cornerback and reigning defensive player of the year in Stephon Gilmore. Uh, they've already had a handful of defensive starters opt out. Uh, you know, they were, you know, both banged up and already depleted. Um, even on Saturday before the game, Bill Belichick is talking about, you know, the shape the salary cap is in and, and kind of talking about the season as if it, it's already lost, basically. At he pretty much was admitting that they are coaching for 2021. Yeah, he was. And, you it know, it was a conversation on Sirius XM. And the reason I bring that up is because. It wasn't his usual media stuff that he does during the week. The host was Charlie Weiss, his former offensive coordinator. And sometimes in those types of conversations, Bill Belichick lets his guard down and is a bit more transparent. So it wasn't his usual jousting sessions with the Boston media during the week. So that's why I think it even lends it more credence that, um, that Bill Belichick decided he was going to speak in such a, in such a tone on Saturday. And I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was illuminating. Yeah, and this this morning, uh, or I guess this afternoon, he was on WEEI in another uh, session like that. And like you said, not um, a media-wide session, but he said, and I'm quoting directly here, I mean, look, we paid Cam Newton $1 million. It's obvious that we didn't have any money. It's nobody's fault. That's what we did the last five years. We sold out. We won three Super Bowls, played in a fourth, and played in an AFC championship. This year we had less to work with. It's not an excuse. It's just a fact. It's a little bit of an excuse, but also easier to hear when you can point to, you can say that when you can say, look, we had three Super Bowls. Uh, we played in another. We got to an AFC championship game. This was going to catch up to us eventually. It's less of an excuse when you frame it that way. Uh, it's just the reality of who the Patriots are. I know it felt perhaps a little bit cathartic for fans, um, Sean McDermott called it an emotional win, more character, another, another character win for the guys. Well, 
the Patriots were a Cam Newton fumble away from tying that game at the end of the game, and they were doing it without a good chunk of their roster, a lot of their best players, not, not even just talking about Tom Brady at this point. I mean, they certainly were without the quarterback who defined their run, but uh, it didn't feel like the convincing, emphatic, changing of the guard moment that everybody wanted it to be. It looked like the Bills escaped with a win. They'll likely escape this season with a division title, but there's nothing that happened on Sunday that that suggested or made you believe that, oh, the, the Patriots, man, this is going to be a long road back for the Patriots and the Bills are just way out in front of them. It was like the Bills in the year that is supposed to be their best year, their year where they arrive and take charge in this division and contend for a Super Bowl uh, or at least winning playoff games in the, in, in the AFC – in that year, they needed a Cam Newton fumble down near the goal line, playing at home, to come away with a three-point win against the Patriots in what is essentially their reset year. So I can imagine that for a lot of fans out there, it was not the inspiring win they were hoping for on Sunday. In a lot of ways, it felt like some of these games over the last few years where the Bills played against the Patriots and Tom Brady was either suspended or injured or being rested. And more often than not, the Bills looked like the better team than the Patriots in those games. And you really said Tom Brady's the difference. In this game, there was no Tom Brady. The Bills did win. Maybe that was the difference in the game. But it didn't look like the Bills were that much better than the Patriots, even though over the course of the season, if you watched both of these teams for eight weeks, the Bills are a better team. But they sure didn't look like it, except in a few key spots at the end of the game, they didn't look like the better team than the Patriots on Sunday. And the answer, if I could answer Tim's question, do you trust the Bills and their record and, and who they are? It really depends on what your expectations are because I think this team's floor is higher than it's been in a long, long time. They're almost certain to make the playoffs. I tend to like their chances against a team that they should beat almost every week. As much as they haven't played impressively in all these games, they've won and looked like the team that was going to win the game more often than not. But do you trust them to be better than this, to uh, win a playoff game, to maybe get a higher seed, to have a more winnable first-round playoff game than not having to play Baltimore or Pittsburgh in that first round, something like that? I don't think so. I don't think they've shown that. I don't think at this point they look quite as good as the team that finished up last season. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of – there's half a season to go before we get to the playoffs, but I don't think if you're a I don't think they – they, they don't feel to me like a better team than last year. It's yeah, I don't think like, they are. I think I probably would have more confidence in them going down to Houston and winning in that first round down there than they would in hosting uh, the first round matchup in Orchard Park against a bunch of opponents coming out of the AFC At, right now. We still have eight games to go, right. but it's hard to be convinced uh, heading into any game that they got this. So they were 6-2 and two last year with maybe lucky to be that. There were different circumstances, but there were games with missed field goals and injured quarterbacks where they won that maybe – I don't want to say they didn't deserve to win, but they weren't very impressive wins. And now they're here with a 6-2 and two record still lacking very impressive wins. I think they got better with some of those second half of the season performances last year, especially in those primetime games. And maybe they can do it this year, but from what we've seen, especially on defense and – running things that don't involve Josh Allen in the passing game. I wouldn't be as confident if I was a Bills fan that the Bills are going to finish strong. And even with that strong finish last year, it was four and four and losing that playoff game. 
So it seemed like they were a better team, but the results weren't that much better. To me, it's the defense. And yesterday was a reminder after a couple of weeks, I think, where um, it wasn't as pronounced, the difference between the defense at the end of the game versus the defense at the beginning of the game. And Damian Harris, and Cam Newton for that matter, if he is able to protect the ball, we're, we're having a, you know, it's a much different conversation and we're thinking even bleaker thoughts about the Bills. But Damian Harris could not be stopped. I mean, he was ripping off six, seven, 10, 11 yard runs. Um, and it seemed like they were just picking their spots as to when the Bills were going to get him the ball and get that next first down. Now, Cam Newton did convert a couple of, I think, two third downs uh, early on that final drive, right? Um, I'd have to go back and look. Definitely one. Uh, I think it was a third and eight uh, to Izzo. But, um, uh, yeah, the Bills' defense played well, I, I thought, for the first half, obviously, uh, holding the Patriots to just a couple of field goals. Uh, but then in the second half, it was totally different. And we were talking about this in particular coming off the Dolphins and Rams games in which the Bills' offense was in control. They had established, and the defense too, in the first half halves of those games, establishing dominance. And that's what they, those were persuasive. That was persuasive. And then in the second half of those games, the Dolphins, if Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, turns into uh, Drew Brees, uh, Jared Goff flips the switch and all of a sudden he's uh, looks MVP caliber in the second half against the Bills defense. And, and I think we, we kind of forgot about that because it was the Kansas city and Tennessee losses were start to finish pretty thorough. But anyways, that second half yesterday, it was bad. And uh, against a bad team that had hadn't lost three games in a row in 14 years, I think it was, and have now lost four straight with a quarterback who seems lost at times. The Bills have to capitalize on those games. Yes, it's a win, but I don't know. Just too many questions for me. And, um, and, and the offense isn't as explosive as it was. You could look at it and say, "All right, well, we go. It'll be fun this year. We'll we'll get into these uh, we'll get into these shootouts and we'll win because our offense is great." Well, the offense is dialed back quite a bit, and uh, now you're now you're counting on uh, needing to bail out a defense that can't uh, that that is showing some signs of trouble with the Jets and the Patriots. But if you're a Bills fan, which none of us are, but if you were, is it cause to celebrate that they're six and two? And according to the football outsiders, 90% chance of making the playoffs. I can't remember the last time that it was not only that they were a good team with this caliber of record, but that their path to the postseason was this wide open. And wide open is not even the word for it. It's like a narrow path. They're going to make the postseason. It's just a matter of what seed and how they make it. Isn't that, shouldn't they be, you know, running through the streets celebrating at this point? Here's where I think it's valuable to be an experienced Bills fan because you have seen your team be 5-1, and 5-2 and two around this before and also have doubts, and you've gotten too excited in the past. So are they celebrating? It doesn't seem to me like they are. I think they're thrilled to be 6-2, and two, especially with the schedule that's coming up. Uh, Seattle, by the way, uh, coming to Orchard Park then Arizona in Phoenix, a bye week, and then it's um, the Chargers and then the Steelers, I think. Uh, San Francisco looks like they're going to be fielding a modified uh, team 
or seven man football or something uh, by the time the bills have to go to San Francisco, but um, they now have this wiggle room uh, because they're stacking up these wins and they can maybe afford to work out, excuse me, work out these flaws, these kinks uh, here uh, over the next four or five weeks and then round into some sort of postseason shape. So the bills are kind of like the Biden campaign. They're happy with the polling, but they don't want to look too far ahead at what might happen after tomorrow. Well, the bill, the bills, uh, Biden might not have anything to worry about on Wednesday morning uh, either way. Uh, But the bills still have to play eight more games. Uh, So yeah, we'll see their, their, their election day comes the first or second week of uh, January, right? Right. It might come down to that week 17 game against the Dolphins. It could. I I mean, they're. Well, I don't think the playoffs will, but winning the division could. Winning the division could and seeding could, importantly. And I think, you know, Jonah's question about, you know, whether Bills fans should be celebrating. I never like to to tell anyone how to be a fan. Uh, if you want to be happy with six and two and happy with making the playoffs and you're along for the ride and you just need that, that bright spot and what has been an otherwise uh, lousy year, um, go for it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you not to be excited about your team being six and two. Uh, if you're the type of fan who came into this season with the expectation that this team would build on what they did last year, which would mean winning a playoff game, then I don't think six and two matters uh, in the context of that really at all, other than the fact that, you know, it, it probably gives them better odds of getting a good seed because they're, they are getting these wins. They're having their bad games, but not taking losses in the process. And that could help them at the end of the year when seeding will be crucial. And it's a different conversation than we're used to having. We're used to saying, are the bills going to make the playoffs? Let's calculate all these scenarios. The, if this, then that, well, now it's going to be the same thing except with seeding because if you're the fourth seed and you end up with Balt, you know, the loser of Baltimore and Pittsburgh, whoever doesn't win that division, well, you know, you just made the playoffs, but are you going one and done? Does anybody think that, that the Bills are beating the, the Ravens in a playoff game at home? Because that would define you know, a successful season in a lot of ways for, for a lot of fans. So, yeah, it's, um, it's not the most promising start. And I, I think to... Tim, to your point about, you know, is this team even better than last year? I think that's a legitimate question because last year they had an elite trait. Their defense was right near the top of the league. And so you knew most weeks, except for the occasional bad matchup that they would run into a team that just had their their defense figured out, that they were going to be in games. And then you just needed a big play or two or, or a drive. Avoid at, turnovers. Right, avoid turnovers and have a drive at the right time. Well, now they don't have an elite defense. They actually have a bad defense. Uh, they have a defense that, you know, seems to lose itself over the course of games. You mentioned the run defense in the second half. They knew what was coming in this game. They knew the Patriots would run the ball. The, the Patriots on these third and longs were handing the ball off or running screen passes because they had so little faith in their quarterback. They kicked a field goal on third and one with 12 seconds left in the first half from the Bills' 15-yard line. Plenty of time to throw the ball to the end zone, but Bill Belichick called it a low-percentage play. It's a low-percentage play because they didn't have any faith in their quarterback. 
you knew they were running or the, ball. the receivers he was throwing to. Right. And yeah, the other, yeah, they're down their top and two they're one dressed tight end. Right. They were ravaged by injuries and don't have much faith in their passing game to begin with. They, the bills knew that you stack the weather on top of that. They stacked the box with eight or more defenders on 56% of Damian Harris's runs yesterday. That was tops in the league. And Damian Harris ran right through all eight plus Jordan Poyer led the team in tackles because nobody in the front seven was making tackles. AJ Klein had two solo tackles and the, all the Patriots did was run the ball. I mean, so yeah. You I'm picturing be- the one play where he got stiff armed, stiff armed in the chest by Damian Harris on a, I think it was anyway, anyway, uh, towards, towards the right sideline. And yeah, AJ Klein just was flummoxed. I mean, couldn't, uh, couldn't battle through that, that, that stiff arm. And they're stuck with that contract, by the way, for another year, most likely. I think they could save, they would have 4 million in dead cap if they cut him next year. It's not like they paid this guy the vet minimum and, you know, or he's some rookie thrown in and is over his head. This is a guy that they love. They went out and targeted and they paid him good, healthy money. Maybe loved, a, loved past tense. Well, Right. They, yeah, Sean McDermott, the way he talked about him yesterday, talked about his resiliency and, and that it was a guy that, you know, they've, they've been after for a while. And, and, you know, he's the same guy that he's always been. McDermott used to talk about Nathan Peterman's resiliency. Too. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. I think I mean, he's about to lose almost all of his snaps, depending on how this goes with Lee coming in. He seems like a better option maybe to, to play those snaps. A lot of guys look like a better option, <laughs> yeah, frankly. I mean, he, and that's just one example of a whole laundry list of problems on the defensive side of the ball. But the point being, if they, I, I would have thought this was a better team than last year if the offense was what it was or anything close to what it was in the first four games of the season and the defense sucked. I wouldn't really care about that because, like you said, if you're going to get into shootouts, you're going to play that style of football, you're going to have a chance to win in the playoffs. Stephon Diggs is a difference maker. Absolutely. It was a, he has changed the complexion of the passing offense. And for four games, Josh Allen looked like he'd taken the appropriate step. In the last four games, though, on passes that travel 10 yards or more in the air, Josh Allen has a quarterback rating of 32.2%, worst of any quarterback in the league over the last four weeks. And he's attempted 46 of those throws. It's not just a downfield passing game like, where are the deep shots? 10 yards or more down the field is... Short and intermediate. The only so we're inching back to that conversation. The the only way there, you know. I thought we had uh, it was settled. I thought all those questions were answered. Oh yeah. Know. Well, hey, I'll let you answer that. Wink, wink. You know. Well, that's I, I you have a guys. question, Matt. Can I ask you a question about that? Not to make an excuse, or and I don't know if if it's been talked about much. I haven't heard it, but so you, you mentioned Josh Allen struggling passing the ball in the last four games. That coincides with this shoulder injury. That still they're still putting him on the injury report every week, and there's not much talk about it. But is that something that still might be affecting the type of pass plays they call? He's not really attempting many downfield passes compared to earlier in the season. He has 46 attempts of 10 yards or more in the air, which in the last four weeks, only four make that. Yeah. Only four quarterbacks have more. Uh, Patrick Mahomes also has 46. Um, So he's still doing it now. The, I think the lack of deep throws, I do think the shoulder injury is something it's on the injury report. It's his left shoulder, not his right shoulder, but still, um, you know, something where maybe 
you know, the offensive line too, right, has been in flux. And, you know, with deeper throws, you want more time in the pocket. Teams are playing more soft zone and basically taking that part away. Um, but he has four interceptions on those throws, which is probably the the part that's weighing down his quarterback rating. It, teams, The way teams are playing them is working. Now, for the first time, they had a running game that could actually respond to that and say, okay, you want to take play you know, way back and take that away just run the ball and you know they actually did it effectively for the first time uh, it felt like the first time all season or at least it was as effective as it's been all season but I think this offense without the element of a downfield passing game or an intermediate passing game is what it was last year essentially or you know maybe even worse and yesterday you know okay a few injuries on the offensive line he had his top four receivers all in the lineup all healthy it, the, the Patriots were without Stefan Gilmore. Um, you know, they, they already don't have Patrick Chung. So I, I don't know. It's, you know, Brian Dable's reasoning was, you know, something along the lines of they haven't been calling a bunch of them or, or whatever, but not talking about, you know, 20 plus 30 yards down the field, these deep bombs. How about just a 12 yard pass, you know, 10 yards or more down the field. Isn't that long. Uh, the only real, uh, passing game they've had has been a lot of short stuff and um, he's just looked like a different quarterback in the last four weeks than he was at the start of the season I don't think anybody expected him to keep up that pace or maybe not anybody I think some people did uh, there was some some MVP chatter coming out of the first month of the season but even being 80 or 90 percent of the quarterback he was in the first month would make them a better team than they were last year but if he plays like he did in the last like he has in the last month come January, maybe they'll win a game just because they find ways to pull some out of their rear end, but they're not going to be um, a threat to make any sort of serious run with the quarterback play they've been getting. The Patriots did run an awful lot of dime and even quarter uh, defenses at the Bills yesterday. I'm sure that that uh, gave Josh Allen a lot of extra to think about putting those extra defensive backs into coverage, and which has also helped uh, the Bills run game quite a bit. Um, and I do want to explore the other side of the ball. So we're talking about the Bills' inability to uh, maybe make tackles um, uh, on defense all season. And now that this running game uh, came up for air yesterday against uh, these Patriots' uh, forgiving fronts, uh, not many linebackers on the field, now I think we do have something to look at with the Bills' offensive line as uh, things have deteriorated there quite a bit. But before we do that, I want to remind you that the uh, that Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPA's business consultants. Um, CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. And CTBK pairs every project with a focus on human connection between its team and the client. For assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, CTBK, 716-630-2400. Over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence, for Western New York and beyond. Um, and what I wanted to mention, speaking of assurance, uh, is uh, the Bills' interior offensive line. And if the Bills do want to build off of 
their running performance yesterday. Um, you know, the, and the Seattle Seahawks aren't exactly, uh, you know, the iron the, or the uh, steel curtain uh, defenses that the Steelers used to put down. But Mitch Morse, uh, another concussion yesterday. He's had a history of these. Um, I, Matt, you're more familiar. You've written about it uh, more than I have. Uh, so maybe I'll let you speak on that to, to uh, a, a heavier degree. But um, John Feliciano, in his first game back from pectoral surgery, moves from left guard to uh, to center to replace Mitch Morris. I asked Sean McDermott about that today on the conference call, and McDermott said that Feliciano took zero snaps at center throughout the course of the week, um, but they felt that he was uh, better than Bates in that situation. It proved to be okay, obviously. The numbers uh, bear it out. Feliciano had some uh, impressive plays yesterday. He seemed to play very well. Uh, but now the Bills' interior offensive line, and I need to refer to my notes because there are a lot of them, uh, Cody Ford uh, is hurt. Uh, Mitch Morse concussed. We don't know how long he's going to be out. And anytime he is concussed, it is significant because of his history. Uh, Quentin Spain is gone. He's been cut. He's now with the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, John Feliciano now playing out of position or at least out of the preferred position that the bills would want him in. Uh, obviously Ryan Bates and, and Ike Butker have been versatile and valuable depth linemen for the bills since they've been here um, going on a couple of seasons. Now they've proven their worth, but what concern do we have now about the bills interior offensive line, not just from the run game, but pass protection. I think it's, a big concern for this offense because, you know, Ike Bucker was a bit better yesterday, but he was pretty bad against the Jets. And so was Brian Winters. And, you know, the Jets defensive line, you know, the Jets are a bad football team, but their defensive line is probably better than the Patriots. Uh, and I think John Feliciano at center isn't too big of a problem. Um, Mitch Morris has been playing really well this year and he's a really good player. Uh, but John Feliciano is the type of leader and the type of personality that you want there. He's got a relationship with Josh Allen, um, and he's a talented player, a valuable guy that they were excited to get back. It's the ripple effect it causes. And I keep going back to the the Quentin Spain release as just such an odd you know, move. And they signed him to that contract, that three-year contract in the offseason that you know, they got got out of pretty easily. It was mostly a one-year deal, but that's still about $5 million. And, you know, he was so disenchanted with being removed from the starting lineup that they essentially had no choice, at least as Brandon Bean described it, to, but to release the guy right when they needed him most because Cody Ford had just gotten hurt. And I'm not saying, you know, Quentin Spain is, you know, a Hall of Famer, but... He was sure. good enough to be their starter all last year. Every single snap last year. Extension. Didn't every he he started every game, played every snap, earned a three-year contract extension, and won that Iron Bills award that they hand out to the guy who performs the best in the offseason strength and conditioning program. So it wasn't a guy who got a three-year contract. The pandemic hits and he goes, Well, just gonna sit around and self-isolate here for eight months before the season starts and not do anything. This was a guy that they deemed exemplary in his off-season work, shows up. 
not saying you have to hand them the starting job by any means, but um, I don't know what was communicated. I don't know how, how it got to a point so quickly where that guy was like, look, let me go get another opportunity somewhere else. Uh, you know, obviously they didn't get an asset for him, but you know, it's just hard to see why, you know, Brian Winters is an upgrade or, um, you know, it's tough when you we talk about this, you bring up this question about the, the biggest issue probably on the Bills offense. And one of the potential answers is gone just because he became unhappy with with what was going on here and that they couldn't get him to or buy the Bills in. became disenchanted with him. You know, it was a very strangely worded update before he was pulled from that game with foot soreness. They They made it a point to say he has just informed us as though – I guess you could have read it both ways. You could have read it as the Bills being a little snippy that we're just now learning about this. Uh, Or it could have been done, obviously, for NFL injury report rules. So that way they don't say, okay, he's hurt. Uh, We're sorry we didn't have him on the injury report. We didn't know. Uh, But it was still, you don't don't see that. You don't see that tweet go out as to make, anyways. uh, Well, in Spain. And and he's gone right after that. So that adds credence to there was a problem there. And he had a bit of a cryptic social media post saying that there was another side of the story. If everybody knew what really happened, it meant maybe you remember, I don't remember exactly how he worded that, but something that he put out there right after being released as if there's more than meets the eye with that decision to release him. He clearly wasn't too, he passed his Bengals physical and he's playing for the Bengals now. So obviously a step down. I don't think that anybody looks at it and says, yeah, Quentin Spain got over on the bills. Um, but if he's capable enough to be playing for somebody else, then he wasn't so hurt that the Bills, obviously, it, it, there was. He didn't anyway, like being benched. I'm sorry. He didn't like being benched. And maybe that's a him problem. Maybe that's a Bills problem. Maybe there's a communication breakdown between the two. But it's it's tough when then you're, you're looking at what a – you know, a couple days later and they're playing the jets and it's like, Oh, Ike Bucker's out there. Like, that's not good. Like, and you know, Bucker was, was better yesterday. And, um, you know, winters is, you know, experienced. He's been around. He'll have, you know, his moments. There's a reason that he was available, uh, in training camp, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a problem for them. And they built up a lot of depth there. They'll probably be fine once Cody Ford gets back. But if Mitch Morse's injury lingers, then, you know, and like you said, those he's been out, he's missed like big chunks of time with concussions. Um, it, it isn't always, you know, we see these one week or a guy gets a concussion on Sunday and he's back by the next Sunday. It's hard to envision that being the case when he was ruled out as quickly as he was and that he's had as many concussions as he's had. And, you know, there's been so much else going on in the NFL this year that the concussion conversation has been pushed to the side a little bit. It feels like, um, nobody's fault really. It's just a matter of, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a whole host of other issues confronting the league, but five documented concussions now for Mitch Morse. At what point does he say enough is enough? Um, you know, he's, in his late 20s, he's not, you know, a young man. He's been paid well. He could take care of himself. At what point does, you know, he say that five is too many? Um, you know, he 
when he got back from his concussion last year after missing all of training camp in the preseason, um, he said he kind of had some of those moments because how could you not when you're out for that long and you've had, you know, the head injuries before. So, you know, he had a lot of financial incentive to play uh, and still does, but l- less and less, the more that contract gets paid out. And I don't think anybody would blame him if in, you know, a few weeks, you know, that was his decision or if at the end of the season, that was his decision. So it's something that you have to think about because uh, I, I'm sure Mitch Morris is thinking about it. How could he not? I mean, he just had a baby this off season, um, you know, and, and this is a recurring issue for him that I'm sure gets really frustrating and on one hand, and then also really scary. Yeah, it's uh, he's he does have a brother with special needs that uh, when he signed with the Bills and got that big contract, uh, he said, you know, now I can take care of my brother for the rest of his life because it does involve a a heavy, heavy financial uh, commitment. Uh, His brother needs round the clock care. But also, um, you know, I I think he's probably more thoughtful than most when it comes to. Well, I don't want to say more thoughtful than most. Um, I'll pull that back. I think he's a thoughtful guy when it comes to long-term health and especially uh, when it comes to CTE. And more uh, forthcoming a, about those thoughts might be true. the way to put you it. You could tell, you know, he's one of those guys that he's a, he's a, he's a, he's, he's contemplative. He is a guy who uh, isn't just there to, you know, grind it out, win football games, you know, eats, lives, sleeps football, uh, you know, hand in the dirt. And you know, this guy has other interests and, and, uh, and things that drive him. I think the things that he wants to do with his life, and that's not to say that he's got one foot out of the game, but uh, five concussions five, uh, documented at least. Uh, and who knows how many back from, you know, high school or how good his, his college was a documenter or the number of times maybe early in his career, he thought, now, I don't want to let him know, or I didn't know what it was. Who knows? Um, anyways, it's uh, I'm always uh, empathetic towards guys who who deal with this, and if they do feel that they want to leave the game, I don't think there's any betrayal at all to teammates or the game or the league or anything like that uh, if they have any se- second thoughts about continuing their careers. Well, and at what point? do the doctors or the league or whoever takes responsibility here have to look at it and say, this is too many concussions and too many concussions having happening too frequently. It hasn't, it's not like he's in a 15 year career and this is his fifth one. This is his fifth concussion in how many years, six or seven years. So I don't know. I don't think there's a hard cutoff, but at some point for mere, for multitude of reasons, uh, safety being one of them, but also the PR of the league and how things look, at some point a guy has too many concussions and you just can't really let him keep coming back and putting himself at risk for another concussion. You know, Jonah, you, you raise a good point because I think that that is a very logical thought, um, a common sense thought, but I mean, we'll have to, and I'm saying this cause I don't know the answer, but off the top of my head, how many guys have we ever heard reported that the NFL has done that for? We hear guys checking out and saying, you know what, I don't, I don't feel comfortable going forward. But we've never heard of the NFL saying that's enough. Well, don't they do that with fighters? 
Well, sure, but you know, those are players. I think that's like state athletic commissions and things like that. But even hockey, I mean, Sidney Crosby's and all these guys with we don't really ever see the NHL stepping in and saying, you know what, that's enough. They let you keep going. There's always a doctor that's going to say you'll be fine, or maybe there's a waiver to sign. Um, but and I'm saying I'm just saying this anecdotally because I don't know, but I can't think of any times when a league has stepped in to save a guy from himself on concussions. Jordan Reed is still playing. He'll probably be starting for the 49ers uh, now that George Kittle is hurt. And George Reed probably had, you know, as bad a concussion, you know, issue as it seems like anybody did. He was, I I don't know the exact number. I don't have it right in front of me, but um, he was a guy that, that had repeated concussions to the point where people were raising the conversation of, you know, should teams continue clearing this guy? And, and he got signed and he, he's, you know, kind of like to Jonah's point about Mitch Morris, it wasn't, it's not like he's been in the league forever. Um, you know, he was getting concussions uh, and ones that would keep him out for a long time. And uh, right now he's dealing with a knee injury, but he's probably going to end up in the 49ers starting lineup when he gets back. So yeah, I don't know that the league ever really has stepped in or who does step in at that point. You know, like you said, there's always going to be a doctor that'll clear you uh, unless it's a concussion that you can't get rid of, which I don't know that those, um, you know, eventually your symptoms will clear up and somebody will, you know, roll you out there. So it's really a personal thing that guys have to come to themselves and, and kind of figure out. And there's so many pressures that, that go along with a decision like that. And it's not really the, the first thing on Mitch Morse's mind right now, I'm sure, as he's trying to get healthy. But um, maybe the league should have more of a responsibility in that, that regard. I want to thank everybody for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs, and business consultants uh, with uh, me, Tim Graham of The Athletic. Matthew Fairburn, also the athletic Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein uh, Incorporated. Uh, But before we go, Jonah, I'd like to touch on UB football. They open their season on Wednesday. Uh, That's assuming that we will wake up and there will be a Wednesday. Um, We're not sure, uh, depending on what happens. Uh, Regardless of what happens, there may not be a Wednesday. But in the event that there is a Wednesday, UB is supposed to play Northern Illinois, 7 o'clock, um, any thoughts, uh, on this game, Jonah, or any, any updates as we head into the long awaited opener for the mid-American conference favored champions, I well, should you know, say the favorites to win the mid-American conference. Right. Champions. This is a game that UB should win. It's a rematch of the MAC championship game two years ago, but there's been a coaching change in Northern Illinois. They're not quite the same team. Maybe they bounce back this year in the first game is, that often can be a sign of what things will happen later. But, um, you know, this is an important season for UB because, as I mentioned on the last podcast, this could be one of their best teams that they've had. I don't know if it's better than the team they had two years ago that went 10-4, and but it's definitely on that level and able to have a similar type season. And I want to preface my other point. So there's people out there, uh, you know, they – they're in the media, but they work for UB or they work for a television station that has a deal with UB and they'll come out and tell you very positive things about UB as it may be other teams. And I take it with a grain of salt and you should too, not to, you know, pump my own wings up here. That's not even a phrase, but 
I can be very cynical about all the local teams, especially UB. Pump your Air Jordans. Yeah, I, right, right. Pump up my Reeboks. I've seen UB when they were one of the worst teams in all of college football going 0-12 and, and getting beaten by 40. I've seen UB when they weren't a very good team, but they won once in a while, but they were often outplayed by the better teams. And I've seen them in their best seasons two years ago. Last season, they were pretty good. The, the other year that they won the MAC and went to a bowl game. I think this team has a chance to run the table. I don't know if they really will win every game, go 8-0, go 6-0 in the regular season, win the max title, win a bowl game. But they have the opportunity to do that. The key game is next week, week two at home against Miami, which is I would put them as maybe co-favorites to win the division, looking at the different polls. Miami won it last year. So that's the game they really need to win. There's another game at Ohio later in the season that's a key game. But if they win those two games, they should win their other regular season games, so at least be favored to win those. They have an excellent chance to be a 6-0 team going into the MAC championship game with a possibility to go to a bowl game and win that. I think there'll be less bowl slots from MAC teams this year. Excuse me, but if you're in the MAC championship, you're a top two team, you're probably going to get a bowl game. This potential eight-game season, which there could be all sorts of postponements and cancellations preventing them from even getting to play six or eight games, but if they do get the chance to play every game on their schedule – I think they have a chance to have an 8-0 season. It's very similar to the last eight games of last season where they went 6-2 and two, but were a couple special teams plays away from being 8-0. They outscored their opponents by 18 points a game during that eight-game stretch. That's dominance. And they play the same. They don't play Ohio State. They don't play Penn State. They don't play Liberty. So they really have a chance if they stay healthy and play well week in and week out to have a perfect season. Which never, I think, would have been said, or at least in – 50, 60 years. I don't think you could ever say UB, they're so good, they could have a perfect season this year, unless you're Brad Ryder. The, be- <laughs> the best teams in the Mid-American Conference over the years, the teams that remain undefeated for a long time, do get into the top 25. Uh, you know, they get votes and all that stuff. They get mentioned. I wonder uh, if the pandemic prevents some of that because everything is so distorted that UB might, because well, and it's, it's such a weird season, and it's almost like making it into the NCAA tournament as an at-large bid. If Buffalo was to be a top 25 team, they probably maybe would have needed to win a non-conference game against a Power 5 opponent. Or look really good five. against Ohio yeah. State, you know, lose to Ohio State by 10 or whatever. Right. So even though they maybe could go 8-0, they don't necessarily have those games on the schedule that puts them in contention for a New York Six Bowl game or being a top 25 team. But maybe if they finish 8-0, I could see them sneaking into the top 25 in the final poll, and that puts them as a team to really watch as a potential ranked team or New Year's Six Bowl game team possibly next season. I know we're projecting over the next couple of months, but if UB puts in a good – let's say they even go 6-2, and 7-1. Um, and one. Uh, At what point does UB need to worry about losing Lance Leipold? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't be worried. I would be worried. I think that there's a potential and Lance Leipel deserves to be coaching maybe in a bigger league at a bigger job, but because of his age, because of the relative, I don't want to say lack of success, but they, they haven't been like South Florida they haven't, or Central Florida. They haven't been one of these 12 and 0 ranked in the top 25 teams with a young hot coach that he doesn't get that kind of attention around the country. And it's also a weird season. I don't know how many coaches are really going to get fired at the end of this season. So I don't know if you're UB that it's like a Nate Oates situation two years ago where you're like, oh, if we're too good this year, this is it for Lance Lightbolt. I do think if they have a good season, they go into next season, have another good season, that at some point in the next 
one, two, three years, uh, another school should at least offer Lance Lightfold the opportunity to coach at a higher level. And maybe UB should be worried about eventually losing him. And he's done a great job. And, and maybe to your point, he's done a great job. And it wasn't like with Turner Gill 10 years ago, where as soon as they started winning, all you heard about was the big programs that Turner Gill might be leaving for. You haven't heard really any of that chatter with Lance Leipold. Well, the thing with Leipold, though, you do see him named in lists here, there as the most underrated coaches in the country here. You know, you see his name mentioned. Um, but the one thing about his, his, the, is the foundation of his, his, uh, resume is the D three dominance that he had. And the idea of here's a guy who clearly can coach and now he's proven he has built a program. So I think that depending on how his, I don't even know who his agent is, but I think there's a way to color him as a guy you might want to take a chance on that he He's got his act together, and here's a, here's a program that has never had any consistency, and he was given an opportunity, and they became a consistent, competitive to successful program uh, and, and a steady ascent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he made his name as a Division three coach, and he's had excellent success here in Buffalo. It's the most consistent success Buffalo has had as a program in their Division one era. He, he's not their winningest coach, but he seems to be their best coach that they've had in the modern era. But, you know, his experience goes back to working at Nebraska. That's where he started early on. I think he had some smaller jobs before that, but he started coaching in Nebraska. He's been at that level. I don't think that – I think in the past he might have been branded as a small-time coach, and maybe that's why it was looked at as a not a risky hire for UB, but an out-of-left-field hire a little bit for UB to bring in a Division three coach. But now he's proven that he can win at Division One mid-major. He can win at the lower level. And he has that experience of knowing what it's like to coach in a bigger program that I don't think, especially a Big Ten school, should feel like he has any holes on his resume. There might be – they do tend to go for younger coaches that have more, uh, you know, connections with the five-star recruits, I think, when a big job like that opens up. But, you know, I think a Big Ten school could – do pretty well with a coach like Lance Leipold if they gave him time to build things up as he's done here in Buffalo. All right. Well, thanks guys. That's a pretty comprehensive uh, Buffalo football edition of TGAF brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and BCs. Uh, I'll have to see if any, if rearranging any of those letters creates any kind of interesting phrases. Uh, for Jonah Bronstein of the Bronstein Corp, for Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic. I am Tim Graham, and uh, I was with my friends. Thanks for listening. And for those of you who are into that kind of thing, for watching on YouTube.